This is Pragmatic Follow-Up Part A for Episode 3, Turn the Damn Light Off. I'm Ben Alexander, and my co-host is John Shiji. So, uh, Mike Oertley, who has uh, been following the show from the beginning, uh, has been has put together a nice uh, addend- addendum piece, if you will, to the home automation segment of the last show. And uh, I encourage you to check it out. The link's in the show notes. And I, I just there's a few comments that he's made in there. Have you first of all, have you had a chance to read through uh, what he wrote? Yeah, I did. I um, I read it the other day. Yes. So, just want to sort of pull out some key comments in there just for further discussion. So, uh, Mike's comment regarding presence and activity uh, detection are key uh, in order to perfect those before accurate automation is uh, is reliable. And most people would then see a benefit from it. Uh, Remote control is important, but then so is remote monitoring. And it's something that I didn't really address in enough depth. I really... I skimmed over that piece is the remote monitoring piece. I see remote control as being a bit gimmicky. I can see a handful of cases where it's useful, but the problem that I've got is that when people try and sell the concept of home automation, selling the concept and saying, oh, look, I can turn the light bulb off from the next continent. It's like, well, that's great, but why why would you want to do that? Now, if you expand that beyond lighting to include door locks, which we didn't really talk about, but you can get solenoid release door locks, you can get uh, you know, shutters, blinds, and, and window dimming and all that sort of stuff. We'll talk about that a little bit more in a minute. But there's all sorts of other parts of, of aspects of home automation you can control remotely. Uh, another idea that someone floated out um, in comments, uh, s- someone else said that uh, there's also the coffee maker idea. So the idea would be that you're heading home from the office and you want to have a nice freshly brewed cup of coffee sitting waiting for you. Well, you could, with home automation, you could you know, click a button and it would just happen. But the thing is, it seems like an awful lot of trouble to go to just for a cup of coffee to be made when you get home. And you're still going to have the presence of mind to do it. Unless, of course, you set up this thing where, you know, every time you've got a geofence, right? And a geofence goes off when you are two miles from home. And as soon as that happens, hey, presto, it automatically Mm -hmm. detects that and starts making a cup of coffee for you. Right. And then what happens when you walk in and you don't feel like a cup of coffee that day? Well, you've got a fresh cup of coffee there in case you wanted it. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Like using using the uh, the iBeacon tech, right? Yeah. Or something similar. Yeah, exactly. But the point point is that, you know, I, I find that the remote, the remote control piece of it is more of a gimmicky cell than a practical cell. Mm -hmm. Whereas I can definitely see the benefit in remote monitoring because let's say you've left home and um, I'm not going to talk about my mother very much (laughs) on this show, but I just want to throw this in there. You probably do this sometimes yourself. I do it sometimes. She does it all the time. Did I leave the iron on? Right. Did I lock the front door? And literally... In some cases, you will stop the car, turn around, go home just to check that you actually shut the door. And it's a little bit infuriating, especially if you're in a hurry, you know, and it's about trusting yourself and all these sorts of other exercises. And I think we did talk about this a little bit is, is sort of trusting in, in the fact that you you do something with repetition. You have to trust that you've done it. Um, yeah. And there's a certain benefit to that sort of learning. But then again, if you did have your house wired up, and home automated and you had door position sensors on all of the doors, you could tell if the doors were open or closed. Of course, if they were solenoid locks, you could also tell if the door was locked or not. 
So all of this extra benefit, it would be handy every now and then. You were a few miles from home. You, you're heading out for a long drive somewhere, and you're like, "Oh, did I did I you know leave the door open or did I lock it?" And you could pull up your you know iPhone or whatever device and have a look in the software and say, "Oh yeah, okay, no, it's all shut. It's all locked. It's all good." Again, that's that's very cool, and I can I can see how that would be very handy. But then again, how often does that actually happen to people? I know it happens every now and then. And it's maddening. But I don't know. Is that enough to spend ten grand on a home automation system? If it's that, I mean, you can spend fifty thousand dollars on some home automation systems, right? For that sort of convenience, which is why I tended to look at it from the cost-saving point of view rather than the uh, geeky "gee, it'd be cool if" sort of point of view. And there are use cases, of course, like I just pointed out, where that is handy, but how often do they regularly occur? And I would I would suggest to I would suggest to the listener, think about how often have you left a light on and wished you had it turned it off and burnt through three, four dollars worth of electricity versus how often do you get two miles from home wondering if you'd, you know, turn the turn the uh, close the door and locked it. So I guess the answer will vary from person to person. Maybe depending on how, if you have a, a any OCD, I guess. I'm not sure. But- well, yeah, and I bet it's one of those situations where, you know, our, our biased memories are, are going to screw with us, right? That you're not, we're not, you're not even going to have the right answer for how many times that you left the lights on. Um, well, no, exactly. And, you know, you'll yeah, we'll- and you'll have an over you know, a, a overly well-remembered answer for how many times you've, you left the stove on, right? That, oh, absolutely. And, and for how yeah. many times you left your son home alone while you went to France, <laughs> which someone, someone tweeted the other day. I don't know if it was, I don't think it was in response to this, but it was the same idea that, uh, yeah, the premise for that show, that movie is it, it couldn't happen anymore. Just, it, it's, wouldn't happen yeah because yeah because you've got the internet and you've got right. mobile phones and yeah that's that's exactly right it's a, it's a shame <sighs> home alone hmm. anyway kevin <laughs> okay cool so yeah i know <laughs> all right there, there are some really nice moments in those movies that's I will good admit. movies those are good movies. yeah they are. yeah yeah i actually quite like the second one when he was lost the lost in new york lost one new york. i thought that right. was lovely had some lovely moments in it but anyway okay digressing uh, okay, so uh, next, uh, I just want to read um, a line that he wrote out of the review because I think it's uh, it's definitely bears further discussion. The setup cost and technical knowledge required prevents it, meaning home automation, from being mainstream. The fact it isn't mainstream prevents a lot of companies from investing in it. The lack of participation in the market prevents costs from dropping due to competition. So... I completely agree with that. The The deeper question for me is the reason why these things are not as mainstream as you would think. And to, in my mind, it comes back to local regulations surrounding household wiring. And that is really the biggest piece, but there's also technical ability. So people, and one of the things that I did talk about 
uh, in the last episode was that there is now a tendency to move away from, with regarding lights, to move away from the idea of something you have to physically mount in the wall. Mm-hmm. And everything's going wireless, so everything's all, you don't need to run, run a dedicated data bus around the house anymore, C bus or X10 or whatever, you know, and so on and so forth. They are now doing it over wireless, which means, since that's the case, you don't need any special skills to do it. If you can change a light bulb, if it's built into the light bulb, then that's all the skill you need. And for the moment, at least, changing a light bulb doesn't require an electrical contractor's license. But, yeah, watch this space. They'd love to put that in. I guarantee it. I mean, they're already, just as an aside note, uh, in Australia, at least, there's a device called an earth leakage circuit breaker. And the point of an earth leakage breaker is that it detects uh, when there's an imbalance in the earth, uh, the earth wire such that there is power leaking to the earth and it's presumably leaking through a person. Oh, okay. Which mm-hmm. is, of course, you know, electrocution. Yeah. <laughs> so, originally, yeah. So, originally, they had them just on general purpose outlets. So, you know, your toaster, your TV, your anything you plug into the wall and give it power. Lighting circuits didn't used to have them. But a few years ago, I think it was about five, six years ago here in Australia, they made it mandatory for all new houses to have uh, earth leakage breakers fitted to uh, the lighting circuits because there are many very rare cases, but there were still cases where people were getting uh, electric shocks and electrocuted from changing light bulbs incorrectly. Wow. So, yeah, I know. Wow. Huh? My, I mean, the, my closest experience with that is, is when we uh, we'd pry the, uh, the ground plug off of our guitar amps in high school and uh, yes. so you wouldn't have that hum. And then you get a little close, too close to the mic and zip. Oh, my goodness. Really? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yep. Okay. Do not try that at home. Bad it's, idea. Um, yeah. Yeah, I've actually had a couple of electric shocks, which I, I, I don't know if I want to talk about that yet. I'm not quite ready. But, yeah. <laughs> yeah, they hurt. Anyhow, moving on. Uh, I didn't quite finish where I was going with that. Right. Uh, where I was going with that is... Um, the point is that it's, in my mind, it's the fact that it's too hard for so many, for, for the majority of people to retrofit home automation to their place, which means they need to get an electrician or a tradesman or both. And that costs money. It costs a lot of money. So it's not just the purchase price of the equipment, it's the fact that you have to do the installation. So the way that this stuff needs to go is it needs to go away from needing, uh, well, basically any cabling at all. And whether that's for power, or whether or not that's for communications. So the communications piece has been handled, you know, between low power Bluetooth or you know Bluetooth 4.0 or Wi-Fi or some alternative wireless proprietary protocol that lives in you know free bandwidth, that sort of thing. Yeah, that's been handled. The technology exists. It's quite cheap, no problem. The piece that hasn't been really solved is for all of the other devices around the house that need power to work, like solenoid door locks. Where do you get that power from? And something like a solenoid door lock, the amount of power that that actually needs to release the solenoid, you're not going to get that from a battery. It needs to be wired to a decent power source. Um, yeah, window tinting, I'll get to that in a minute. But there's a whole bunch of different cases where you really just need to get wires to these things. And so long as that's the case, you're really going to struggle with retrofitting houses with a lot of home automation. Lights is the easy one. And that's why I talked about it. So, yeah, it's the sort of thing that people can get access to, like the LIFX bulbs, a whole bunch of other uh, 
you know, adapters you can get adapters that now sit between the light bulb and the actual light socket and they have the the the, wire, the wireless control built into it and you can turn them on and off remotely so anyway so i see that that what's going to allow there to be a disruption is going to be when it's possible to completely get rid of any wiring whatsoever for the item that you're using for home automation and once that happens I think that's the point at which, oh, and obviously the cost has to be reasonable and there has to be a, a cost trade-off whereby after five years it pays for itself or 10 years it pays for itself. People will see the value in doing it and then they'll start using it. So those are my thoughts on that anyway. So, uh, oh, yes, there was one other thing too, and that is that a lot of the home automation stuff needs a server to run, like a central controller. And... It's interesting because everything starts off centralized and then moves to decentralized. So, this, that's been my observation. So, at the moment, it's cheaper and simpler for everything to either through wires or wire or wirelessly go back to a common controller. And the common controller is like, the, he's a stop-go guy and says, um, yes, this happened, you turn on. Or no, this didn't happen, you stay on or off or whatever you do. Go do with yourself. And it's interesting because some people have gone down the PC route, kind of like media PCs. Mm -hmm. So, you run the software on your PC, you plug it into the wireless connection or to your CBUS or a CBUS adapter or something, and your PC can then communicate and control all these devices and do all your home automation for you. <clears throat> so, Microsoft announced in 2010 something that they called Home OS, which was designed to do exactly that. Hasn't been released yet, but in typical Microsoft fashion, they announced it. Anyway, <clears throat> yeah, I know. But there actually is a real product you can download and use, and it's called Linux MCE. And as the name suggests, it let runs me on stop Linux. you there. Oh, come on. Linux is fine. <laughs> it's perfectly fine. I, I, yeah, okay. I, I bag Linux sometimes, but you know, I'm, I'm glad that we live in a world where Linux exists, and there's a heck of a lot of servers that do run Linux. So I, I used to bag Linux a lot more, but it has come so far in the last 10 years that it's it's nowhere near as painful as it used to be. And it used to be painful. And that has nothing to do with the fact that it will never work as a consumer product. Uh, yeah, that too. <laughs> but, you know, never mind that. So, okay, yeah. So, anyhow, the point is you can download the software and you can use it as a server. And there's plenty of, uh, well, not plenty, but there are several... Uh, applications that will run on an iPad and an, uh, on an iPhone and an Android and so on that allow you to control things uh, via the Linux MCE server, as it mm -hmm. were, home automation server. No matter how you slice it, though, even if you don't use a PC, you still need some kind of a controller. And, and that's a problem because then you come back to, well, how do I program it? What options have I got? Is there a common programming language? And, of course, there isn't. It's the same, it's the same problem with PLCs, right? Uh -huh. Everyone's got their own. So, if there's an area that could also make things so much easier would be if somebody would put together some common platform for all this stuff and have a nice, clean programming language that most people could learn. And I realize that that's actually uh, impossible probably because as soon as you say a programming language that anyone could learn, suddenly you've just, you know, you've just talked yourself into a corner. Because right. I'm not sure such a thing really exists. I mean, Apple Script was supposed to be that, and it isn't. I mean, can you think of any pro like Automator? That's another good the example. The closest I mean, you're going to get is something like like IFTTT or Yahoo Pipes, something like that. That's yeah. That's 
you know, you're you're chaining things together. You're chaining together a series of predefined actions. I, I mean, I think that's that's what seems to me oh, that, sure. that that would work. And then, yeah. and then, you know, I mean, it's the you know, it's the Unix kind of the Unix model of things of you know have have little things that do one thing and and pipe input through them and yeah. I mean, you could probably do it's it's doable. I just don't know. You know, it's just like a it's just like Linux on the desktop, right? Like it, it's all in how you package it. And Absolutely. So I was looking at this and I thought to myself, well, why, why not go with a distributed approach? So we've got centralized home automation and that has a whole bunch of advantages, I guess, cost being one of them. But what about a decentralized approach? What about an approach whereby you set up a relationship between two devices. Let's say you've got a motion detector in the room and it's programmable and you 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 pair it with it on Bluetooth 4.0 and you say you are the living room motion detector. And then you put a, one of these add-on light adapter things in between the light bulb and the light socket and that will turn the light on and off. Or maybe it has a dimming control built into it so you could dim it as well. Either way. And you program and say to the light bulb... You're, you're the master and you need to listen to when this guy says there's no one in the room mm-hmm. and you'd give it, say, you know, listen to the living room monitor, living room um, motion detector. And all it does is sit there and the light is on and the motion detector says, oh, someone in the room, light turns on, someone's left the room, wait two minutes, no motion, turn the light off. And it'll send out these signals and, and it'll know when to listen and when to run timers and all sort of other thing. And such a decentralized system, if you had the whole house built with all these things in them, then you could network them all together and they could all collectively share what was going on in all the rooms and they could just tell each other what to go do with themselves. And you wouldn't need a common, a, a single point. You wouldn't need a server. It would all be decentralized. And you could program each of them individually just from using an iPhone because each of them, embedding a web server on something these days is so tremendously easy. Right. You know, so it's amazing because, uh, like, out the modem that you've got connected to your computer, you know, it's got a web server built into it. You can just go to the IP address and go and configure the thing. And this has been around for a long time, and getting an embedded web, a web server on these things is as cheap as chips these days. So, you know, it wouldn't be a massive expense. It could be done. So, anyway, I guess that's where I'd like to see it going. And there's none of this. If you wanted to go outside, you'd have to get a special module that would then connect to the Wi-Fi and and give you ex- external access to it. But the other thing about external access, uh, before I wrap up and move on to um, uh, to some other things, is once you open up to external access, then what about external hacking? Mm-hmm. And you got to you know, ad- admittedly. Things have improved a lot. I mean, WPA2 is still relatively solid. I mean, comparing it to WEP, for example, for your Wi-Fi. But, yeah, and that's just local on your local network. But once you go beyond that to the internet, you know, if you've got a firewall set up and your router set up correctly and, you know, there's no malware and no backdoors been put on your computer so no one can get into your local network from outside, if you assume that all of that is fine, you've got nothing to worry about. But, you know, hacking is hacking. Then again, what are they going to do? You know, it's it's two in the morning and suddenly someone hacks in and turns all the lights on to piss you off, I guess. Um, but more maliciously, it would be um, if you had someone on door locks fitted, it, you could hack in and just automatically unlock all the doors and let, let yourself in. Right, right. So, I don't know. I'm dubious about door locks anyway. I think it's a bit, yeah, 
I get it for high trafficked areas and when you've got secure access and in a corporate or military environment, I get that. But in a home environment, I'm not so sold on it. But anyway, so I don't know. I uh, I think I'll just leave it there unless you've got anything else to add on that quickly. And I want to jump into um, sound around the house. Uh, no, I, I think that's. I think the di- distributed approach is an interesting idea, and I was just. Um I had a look around. I was looking I around, look like, around on GitHub stuff. actually, just to, mm. just as you were going, as you were explaining that, because there's a um, it's a project called um, Surf that's a uh, this is very very lightweight um, service discovery and orchestration tool that's designed to kind of that's why I'm trying to think of the right, the right way to describe this, where it's it's. It's, it's you know extremely lightweight, available and and what well as they say like fault tolerant. But it's it's sort of this idea of like eventual consistency, like with databases, right? But it's the same yeah. way with services. So it's uh, it's the kind of thing that that this concept would work well for for what you're describing because you're you're really think things ha- things have to happen inside a certain period of time but they don't need to be extremely precise right you don't need an, yeah. an, a, a huge level of control you just need these things to kind of fuzzily work themselves out without you having to be super finicky and design everything down to the last detail and um yeah there's there's a lot of i mean it's it's i don't think this you know this particular project is the right you know answer for that or something that would work because i still think it's probably too heavy for for the uh, the kind of embedded systems you'd want to have, but it's it's getting there. Like all these all these sort of things are coming together. You're seeing that you're seeing that same pattern emerge uh, at multiple levels, right? We see the same thing with things like like tent um, that and 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 um, oh, what's the there's a Raspberry Pi project for doing your own home yep, server, uh-huh. and uh, I, there's a couple of them, but I can't think of what they're off the top of my head. But it's the same idea where the the power requirements and the processors needed to actually run these servers are trivial now. I mean, you could do it on your phone while it's not while it's not busy doing other things, and so the so just having a couple little boxes in your house that run different rooms would be no problem. So, anyways, yeah. Yep. Yeah, I actually looked out there for a, a practical real-world currently selling model uh, distributed system, and I couldn't find any. doesn't mean they're not out there. I just couldn't find them. So, yeah. I think it it's may that, well be. Yeah, it's, it's happening now. Like, we're, we're in a year or yeah. two, you're gonna, it's going to be a different answer. Because the one, yeah. the, I can't find it. I can't find the link. But the, uh, the project that I was watching was... It really, it really was. I mean, their their stated goal was like, we want to be the iPhone of of home, you know, home servers and and running all the you know, and which is a that's a big <laughs> it's a big task to set for yourself. But oh yeah, but I mean, just think of the size of the market, though. I mean, it'd right. be enormous. It's huge, and and so many there's so many things that that really are. You know, a lot a lot of these systems have been designed. Were clearly designed by engineers for engineers, right? And they yeah. they there was a great article on Ars Technica a couple of weeks ago, I think, talking about the you know the need to to do away with software that's designed you know designed to to deflect users away from it. And you think about like sending up Bind, 
uh, for DNS or yeah. running your own mail server and just what, what a nightmare that is for technic for, for, you know, smart geeks to do. And the idea that a, a normal, you know, I'm sorry using the horrible term, but that a normal human would do it is, is, yeah, it's not going to happen. Yeah, exactly so. right. Okay. Alrighty. So, um, thank you very much to Mike for that, uh, for that wonderful uh, addendum to the home automation discussion. So, there's some other feedback we got from uh, mainly, mainly, this is sort of a, a combination, but the majority of different people, but the majority of it came from, uh, from Clinton. Um, so, my, my co-host from Anodize also listens to the show and uh, suggested that we didn't mention multi-room sound speaker systems and the tracking of people through a house such that the sound follows you as you move through the house. Now, he w- the reason I didn't bring that up, and because I, I was aware of the that's sort of the dr- one of the dreams, right? It's the same with lighting following you through the house, same kind of dream, mm-hmm. right? There's currently no products that I'm aware of that do that, and yeah, there there are products like this Sonos, and then there's this one called Jongo, which is a new one. Um, assuming I'm pronouncing that correctly. And anyhow, they are multiple room sound systems, but you still have to manually select which of the rooms is playing what sounds. So, and yeah, they and can that's l- and that's AirPlay then. I mean, like yeah, and AirPlay. Uh, it's yeah, it, we're so close, right? We're so close to that perfect mm-hmm. setup, but it's it- yeah. So, and here's the theory, right? The theory goes: Apple adds iBeacons. Right. So, an iBeacon detects that you are within a certain proximity of a certain speaker. And that that speaker uh, then should take over whatever music you're listening to. But the only way the iBeacon would work is if you had your iPhone in your pocket. Right. The problem with that is that, well, what if there are other people in the living room and you've walked into the dining room and the other people in the living room are the ones listening to the Christmas music and you've just brought the music with you? Yeah. You get there's certain assumptions, there's a lot of usage assumptions that, that, you know, it follows. I think if you're the only person in the house, it kind of makes sense. But the other thing is, the iBeacons only really make sense because with with audio, it's the source of the audio that matters. So, the source of the audio is the speaker itself. So, you would build the iBeacon into the speakers, which means if it's AirPlay, then part of the AirPlay standard would then require an iBeacon to be built into all AirPlay compatible branded speakers. And right. I, I would suggest that inevitably that will start happening, but how on earth they manage that control is another thing entirely. The other issue with iBeacons is that it is a very short-range technology. So, if you do have, let's say, a set of speakers in on the, the backside of one wall in one room and directly on the, on the other side of that wall, behind them, you have another set of speakers, which is a perfectly legitimate way to set your speakers up, especially if you're running cables through all the walls. You want to have cables going to a common location in the wall space and you would simply punch through on each side of the wall problem with an iBeacon is, is it going to be directional enough to tell the difference when you're in front of it in one room or behind it from the other room's point mm, of view? Yeah, that's a good point. So, because walls generally are RF transparent. I say generally. I mean, we all know that if you've got a steel frame house and your Wi-Fi starts to die as it goes through the walls, but there's still plenty of houses, like my house is a wooden frame and it, the Wi-Fi travels a fairly decent distance. So, the iBeacon is going to have the same kind of, you know, range through the walls. So, there's all sorts of practical issues. 
uh, and with with directionality and and actually truly detecting when people are in whatever rooms, which is why I prefer the motion detection point of view. But motion detection is not what iBeacon is all about. Right. Right. Yeah. So it, it, it's interesting. It's interesting how um, the like the experience of having a I have a Bluetooth receiver in my car and it shows up, you know, as an AirPlay device, right? And then as I you know come in from the garage, like it'll, uh, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll turn off the car, right? So that shuts down the radio or shuts down, you know, the car audio. And so then my iPhone's then like, hey, I need to find something else to play this out of. And it will often then select the the AirPlay from the Apple TV, which is in the back room, Um but it won't start playing again. Like it's, you know, the series of steps that are going on, going through to, to decide what to do when you can kind of work out the priorities that, that Apple's had setting, you know, setting these things up because you, you, you do have that weird, you know, lack of security with airplay where that pretty much at any time someone can, uh, kick you off and sort of take over a, uh, a screen, you know, usually by accident, right? That someone just had it set up from what they were doing before. And now they, you know, they jump onto YouTube and something's playing. Um, but the, what's, what's strange is, is it's exactly what you were talking about is, is how, how far in certain directions those, um, the, you know, Bluetooth will actually range. And then in others, it will be extremely short. And that, I mean, yeah, you could through, through walls, Sometimes I'll be playing stuff uh, from my uh, like from my Mac or from my iPhone to like a, I have a, a set of Bluetooth headphones, like little remote ones that you know so you don't have any like when you're mowing the lawn or something, and uh, you don't want a cable. And it, yeah, it's it's. I wonder. I think you probably would need something like motion detection to really really have accuracy because it'll it'll work just fine, and then. And and for ridiculous distances, and then if you get the wrong thing in between you and the and the transmitter, and boom, it's gone. Uh, yeah. Unless unless do you think they could do like some triangulation with with multiple beacons? Yes. Is with yes, that they is could. that accurate enough? Uh, it well, okay. Yes and no. Uh, the problem with triangulation by using RF is that. Um, timing, there's, there's two ways you can do it. You can do it based on signal strength or you can do it based on time differential. And GPS works on time differential. Mm-hmm. So, all of the GPS satellites are all synchronized to the same clock. They all send out an encoded uh, data stream with the time uh, encoded into it. So, by measuring the time differences between the received signals, you can calculate your position as long as you've got three or more satellites to work mm-hmm. from. But when you've got Bluetooth, you don't have that. And there's no way that they're going to release, well, they're just not going to release a, a source whereby your your Bluetooth is, is synchronized and it's got a, a clock with such a high stratum level as an atomic clock that never drifts that, right. and a GPS receiver for triangulation on a different set of free, it's just not going to happen. Like an indoor GPS, essentially. Yeah. No, so they're going to have to do it based on you know, signal strength. And the problem with signal strength is if they did do it based on signal strength, and I'm not saying that they will, but if they did, then the issue with that is that it varies depending upon what it's traveling through, but your position doesn't. So let's say I'm standing at the halfway point. I'm, I'm looking at a wall uh, in the hallway, and on one side of the wall is one room, the other side of the wall is the other room, and they both have a beacon on either side of them. Well, 
one of them is going to pass slightly through the wall and its signal will be attenuated ever so slightly and that will then show me in a position that is incorrect. Mm-hmm. Whereas the other one has a direct line of sight to me, so there'll be no change to the signal. And that's not including multipath. So if you've got a oh, signal right. bouncing yeah. off walls and stuff, then you'll get cancellation of the signal. So you'll get slightly out of phase effects and that'll reduce or increase the signal strength based on the, the distance of the reflections from the multipaths. There's a whole bunch of annoying um, geometry and um, radio stuff you got to deal with to get any degree of accuracy. The other problem with position um, detection through triangulation is that you need to know where each of the where each of the transceivers are. So you, if you put something in a room, it needs to know where it is relative yeah. to the other device it's triangulating from with with. So if you've got two or three, got, let's say you've got three eye beacons, if they're used in this way, and those three eye beacons, you put them on a coffee table in one room, you know, kitchen bench in the next room, whatever. They need to know, in order to get an accurate position on you, they need to know where each of their other friends are in order to do that calculation correctly. So the geometry requires that. So what are you going to do? Are you going to ask people to use a tape measure to measure the distance between them and i mean that you're just not are you no you know it's not gonna, there's yeah. no so there, there's all sorts of you know fundamental issues with with tracking position within a house and it's one of the main reasons why this sort of thing is just hasn't happened yet so i don't know i the the, the ultimate the, the correct answer is to do something like gps right but I just can't see consumer-level products with that sort of technology for at least, you know, another five or ten years. It's just it's too expensive and difficult. And, you know, I mean, I guess if you had an external antenna and you pulled one of the GPS clocks in and you're able to replicate that clock and then distribute it to the different devices and then have them retransmit it, yeah. But then the distances between them would be so small that the multipath difference, the time differential would be so inconsequential, you'd never tell them apart. Right. The GPS works because they're so far away. It's like the further away you are, in essence, um, the more accurate your position detection becomes, which is kind of counterintuitive. But right. No. Yeah. It's you. You actually need like a, a slower transmission. Um, yeah. Well, you need. Yeah. You need physical separation. Otherwise, right. there'll be no time differential between the the the, the different signals. So, I don't know. Complicated problem. Might be yeah, it might be the kind of thing that needs another. Uh, well, you know, there's. We were talking about it on on cultivate with the um with Prime Sense. Yeah, and, I was listening to that, and I, I looked at that one. Yeah, I, I researched a little bit uh, some of their other. You know, Prime Sense has licensed their technology to a number of companies, and. You know, one of the things that, you know, is a, a potential use for this is, is a sort of you know in, basically internally mapping. Um, you know, homes, houses, uh, buildings, you know, all that sort of thing. You could, they, these are essentially that they're getting to the point where they're accurate enough that maybe a little eye beacon could also be spraying some IR throughout the room and figuring out, you know, that, you know, that sort of thing to, building small maps and figuring out where things are relative to other devices that are broadcasting and receiving um i don't know i mean it's yeah. it's the kind of thing that that's actually i mean that's what a lot of what microsoft actually does with it is is they're figuring out what you know what's going on in the room so they can 
know what they actually need to focus on because otherwise there'd just be too much noise. But yeah, I don't know. It's, it does seem like it's a little way and, and it still, still doesn't get around like the, the fundamental problem of what to do when there's more than one person. Uh, well, the thing that I, I really love about the connect is the multiple ways in which it detects it because Microsoft obviously figured this out that you can't just use any one method because each method right. has a flaw. So you can't just use stereotropic, uh, stereotropic cameras you, yeah, for, for depth detection of moving objects. You can't just use infrared. They also use audio, and I'm not sure if they use ultrasonic or not, but yeah, there's there's more than one kind of sensing that it goes on in order to determine who's doing what, who is who, is who right. and what's in the room. So whatever solution they come up with you know, for eye beacons and tracking people's movements through a household... There's no doubt in my mind that it'll be something like a Connect and yeah. it, whoever it is. And it's going to be expensive for a long time. It's not going to be, yeah, the easy way out is a simple eye beacon and you just turn the, the signal strength down really low such that you've got to be right in front of it, like within a foot of it in order to actually detect you. Uh, other option, you know, is that you've got a motion detector that detects when something is moving in the room. And again, that's prone to, you know, false triggering from mm -hmm. all sorts of things like someone left the window open and the curtain's blowing. Oh, there's motion in the room. Turn the lights on. Oh, yeah. Now, what, what if you do that with a put an eye beacon in and just put them in the doorways? Yeah. Well, you know, again, the question is, um, you know, are you moving towards it, away from it? Are you in the room? Are you just standing in the doorway having a chat? It depends. No, no matter where you go, there's always some kind of a compromise, which right. is why you need multiple levels and multiple ways of detecting. And that's what the Connect has. And whatever Apple does, if that's the way they want to go, they're going to need to do the same thing. Yeah. But in yeah, any case, it's... Yeah. yeah. In any case, so um, multi-room audio, it's a dream. It hasn't happened yet. Uh, I can't wait for it to happen. I think that'd be brilliant. Headphones. Uh, in the meantime, yeah. <laughs> it's funny how a set of headphones and e earbuds uh, with your iPod shuffle works just fine. Isn't that funny? Well, those, I, I, those, I have these uh, Motorola SD10Ds, whatever, uh, wherever they're at. Can't find it. But yeah, it's especially Bluetooth uh, headsets are, like, it's a little ugly. I wish it was smaller and I wish it was louder, but. Yeah, I mean, walk around the house, and like I said, it's it's amazing how far the the Bluetooth actually can shoot, and it's probably just compressing up, you know, packets and sending it over when it can. So I'm I'm assume it's tricking, you know, it's being a little bit yeah. uh, smart with how it's transmitting. But yeah, sometimes low tech. I think. Go? Well, I mean, it's just it's a it's a satisfactory use of existing technology doesn't require anything fancy. It just works. So, yeah, until you walk out of range and then it doesn't work. But the other option okay. is just gigantic speakers and turn them up all the way. All the time. <laughs> it's funny. Many teenagers do that. It works. <laughs> and it does work. And then the police you get have, called. You have mul multi-house audio. <laughs> <laughs> oh, gosh. Anyway. All right. So, enough about speakers. I want to talk about glass or rather um, polarizing window filters. Have you ever heard of these things? Um, yes, they are uh, fancy automatic shades for yeah people's houses that are really really expensive and have no no walls. It's just glass all the way around, right? Yeah, I know. And I I actually was aware of their existence, but I had never actually um, looked into it before. 
and it, it was something that was brought up in some of the feedback. And so, I had a bit of a look into it. And some of the stuff is really quite fascinating. But the idea is, just, just for those that aren't aware of what it is, is you can apply a film to a window and by applying an electrical charge, there's other ways of doing it, but electrical charge would be the most common. So, apply a voltage to it and it literally will turn from clear to black in a matter of two or three seconds or a shade of grey in between, you know, a shade of tint in between. So, think of it like an electrical tinting for the windows. And, of course, when it, that, that tint is a genuine tint, it'll actually reflect light just as if it was a permanent tint. And these things can be applied to it, retrofitted to existing windows. And if you're in a climate where you have central heating, for example, and you want to keep the sunlight out, you're trying, oh, sorry, I should say central cooling. So, you've got central cooling in your house or air conditioning running, then reflecting that heat through the tinting during the daytime will reduce the amount of heat lost, mind you, getting double glazed windows would probably have a similar effect. Mm -hmm. Now, I don't know what the difference is in efficiencies. I I had a look for that, but I couldn't find anything. So, if anyone knows what the efficiency gains are between the two different methods, I mean, I guess if you had double glazed uh, windows as well as the tinting, you'd probably get an additional benefit. But in any case, these things are wonderful, but there are some problems. So, first problem is longevity. Longest warranty that I could find was 10 years. So, you put the film on, it's only useful for 10 years. After that period of time, it'll simply stop working properly. So, it won't fully tint or it just won't tint at all. So, that's an issue. Uh, Most of the other home automation stuff that we've talked about will last a lot longer than that. Next issue is sliding windows. You need to fit a special window frame that allows you to actually slide it without... Because the problem is that you need to have power going to the window, which means you need wires to the window, which means you need to have a special design window frame in order to have this film applied to the glass on the sliding pane of the window. So, that's a problem. So, retrofitting that is not as straightforward as just applying a film to it. Mm-hmm. Next problem is you need, obviously, cables need to go to it. Although I suppose it may be possible to do it using batteries, but I'm not sure how long the batteries would last. Next problem. Uh, In the middle of the day, it's hot. If you lose power, you lose your tint. That's probably going to be inconvenient. Mind you, if you've got... (laughs) I guess if you've got air conditioning running and you've lost power, I guess it doesn't matter, does it? You're going to get hot one way or the other. But it's just an interesting thing. If you were to spend the money on this electro tinting for the windows... Or you ought to put the same money into, retrof- into re- retrofitting in double pay, um, double glazed glass. Well, double glazed glass is going to work irrespective of whether you've got power. Right. You know, and it's going to last a lot more than 10 years. So, this is sort of where I'm going with this as, as, a, as a potential explanation as to why I don't think it's taken off. What's the Despite what's the the, uh, the off state for these? Is it, is the, is it a clear screen, a clear window? Yeah, it's or clear. When it, it's, yeah, clear it's clear when it's off and then... Yeah. I mean, if, it'd be even worse if you're for privacy. I mean, if something was going on, like I'm not going to go into what might be going on in a bedroom, but let's say something was going on in the bedroom and they had the windows electrically tinted and the power went out, that could potentially be embarrassing. Right. I'm just saying, you know. Anyway, let, let your imagination run wild on that one. So, uh, okay. The other thing about it, okay, so we talk about the wiring. 
It still is a better option, though, than physical blinds because you can automate physical blinds. You know, the, the most common blinds will automate uh, the simple roll-up, roll-down blinds. And that will have a similar effect for privacy purposes. But because they've got a motor in them that, you know, drives them up and down, anything that turns, anything that moves is going to be less reliable than a film that you would apply and charge it with a voltage. So they still have the reliability advantage over the moving system with moving blinds. So it's not all bad news. But anyway. So, yeah, I had a look for... Um, sites that had these available, places that had these available, there were a handful, but I couldn't see any relative pricing. You had to call and I mm. I haven't come across these. They're not common at all. And I'd suggest there's a whole, those reasons I just gave are a whole bunch of reasons why. But in the end, they do exist. It is something that you could get if you wanted and it is uh, definitely has the cool factor. And I would suggest if you were really worried about cooling in your house that I'd go double glazed glass first and then if you really had the money, then go for these as well. But it's not going to be a cheap retrofit exercise. No, no. And there's that word again. I keep using it, retrofit. So now what I wanted to talk about was, I guess, something that I... No one, this wasn't part of the feedback. This is something that I feel like I really missed, that we didn't talk about enough of in the home automation uh, in the last episode. And that comes down to retrofit versus design. One of the things that really annoys me is the way in which town planning and development and housing design is more about architectural cookie cutting than it is about eco-friendly design. I find it unendingly frustrating because there is an optimal angle for houses to be built uh, with a northern face or a southern face for the, the height of the roof line, the design of the, the natural cooling within the house, whether you use louvers in certain locations for improved ventilation, you know, such that the house is designed to naturally be warmer in winter and cooler in summer. Forget your solar panels, forget your solar hot watering, just the, the water system and any of your home automation, but designing a home to be actually more energy efficient without even installing an electrical wire in it. And this is not new. This is something that's been around for a long time. And yet, town planners and developers have these dinky die little winding roads, different sized <laughs> blocks. When they open up a land of uh, an estate, the roads are so narrow, you can barely get one car down them. And, um, I, you know what I mean? There used to be a time when all of the roads were a perfect rec- like hash pattern. And yeah. they're all 90 degrees, they're perpendicular to each other. And uh, yeah, I think it was, I'm, not, I'm not sure where this began, but the place where I saw it the most prevalently was in the United States, um, also in, in Canada, whereby the streets were, were, were named incrementally and you would have east, west, north, south. So, oh, right, you would have yeah. streets, streets would be um, north, south and avenues would be east, west. And you would simply start from center street, center avenue, and you would go first, second, third, fourth, fifth, so you have like fifth avenue and 22nd street. And straight away, you knew that there was in one or two places. And once you add the northeast, southwest, southeast, then you knew exactly where it was. That's why Calgary was originally set up. I lived in Calgary for a few years and, and there are a lot of um, cities in America also that have a similar kind of grid system. Yeah. 
if you went well in Ohio, from Ohio and and west, you know, as you're going through the Midwest, you start to see from the, from the county level down, you see that grid appear. And uh, uh, yeah, another one is if you take a look at um, uh, I think Texas is is similar, where the northern part of Texas is just this this perfect. You know, it looks like a chessboard. Um, right. Um, and yeah, like my neighborhood, it's, 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 if I look at it on Google Maps, it, it is just, it is a perfect grid. Even, you know, it, even the, the, like the river, like that goes right through it, like that's ignored and everything is still just a grid <laughs> around it. Uh, yeah, so te- Texas, Texas is carving. great. Texas is a perfect example of this on the county, uh, county level. Like the, sure. the, the western half gets, perfectly organized and yeah i uh i appreciate that because yeah when you when you go to these i mean the midwest in ohio now is is full of these awful sprawling exurbs with exactly what you're talking about like curly q roads that lead nowhere and and it's just yeah and there's what's the front yard what's the backyard and what is this thing called a neighborhood um just yeah, exactly. Gone. Anyways, yeah, go ahead. Sorry. But yeah, that's, no, that's okay. But that's exactly my point, though, is that with a grid system, you can angle the grid in such a way that all the houses would be able to point in the optimal direction if you design your grid in the, the correct direction to start with. Yeah, and then you could have the houses designed such they always had the, the the predominant face of the house was in the right direction. I'm not an architect, but you know I know the basics, and the basics are that you, know, you don't build a box, pack it with insulation, and then put heating and cooling in it. I mean that's the most ridiculous, energy inefficient way of designing a house you can think of. It's sort of like saying we've got all this excess of energy. Let's just you know do whatever and uh, build something that'll fit in an optimally small amount of space. And we have a standard design now. We've paid architects thousands and thousands of dollars to do this design. We've built it a thousand times. We know that it's good. So now we're going to sell it extra cheap. And hence, you get cookie-cutter houses right. and you get prefabrication and, and all of all this stuff. But the problem is that all these designs were designed to maximize the amount of floor space you get for the amount of building materials that you've got, or at least most of them are designed that, that sort of way. And that's what people demand. They want value for money, but they're not thinking about, okay, well, I want something that's actually going to be more eco-friendly. I want something that's going to um, have good natural ventilation. You know, that sort of thing. You know, people just don't think about that. I, I, I met plenty of people that that would hardly ever open their windows. Mm-hmm. You know, it's always all closed up and it's all centrally heated or centrally cooled. And, you know, what's this thing called a breeze? Uh, I don't know. I think you feel that when you go outside, I think, you know. So, I, it frustrates me, you know, because all this technology, we talk about retrofitting. Yeah, but geez, it would have been so much nicer if it was built in from the beginning. Well, you've got a, I think in Australia, there's a, do you have a lot of bungalows in Australia? Um, like bungalow style, the, uh, or um, I don't know, maybe like early arts and crafts. Um, it's, it's, it, it, it was it's yeah, probably, we, probably mm. one of the first examples of, of efficient and really, really thoughtful um design that was made um was you know that could be mass produced right and it came out of well i mean the bungalow itself i think came out of um i want to say bangladesh uh where is it maybe india um but um you know the the small one story typically or maybe like one and a half and you have the big veranda and everything and it's it's uh that kind of you know, it, it 
they're small and they're compact, but they make use of just sort of, you know, clever use of material and, and the way it's laid out to at least, you know, at least achieve uh, comfort in the summer, if not so much in the winter, I think it's a little harder to deal with it there, but it's also something, you know, where they, they're usually making use of local materials um, in a way that I think, uh, I don't know, it defies that cookie cutterness. And it's, well, I'd it, like it's, to, yeah. Yeah, I'm sorry. I'd, I'd like to say that that was the case, but I mean, I'm really, no. I mean, just a little bit of local history for those that are curious, I guess, is that in in Queensland, which is the state that I live in and grew up in, spent most of my life in for that matter, is there was an old style of house that was rather unoriginally referred to as the Queenslander. And the idea of this house is that there's a central living area and it's a large open space with a high peak roof. All the floorboards are, are all wooden floorboards, hence that they have small gaps between them to allow air to flow up from underneath. The entire house is elevated off the ground mm-hmm. by, you know, about six or seven feet. And there's a big well, big veranda around the outside that you can walk around and the actual rooms would open out onto the veranda. So, what would happen is that during the heat of the day, you would get natu- natural convection uh, breeze basically from underneath the house where it was cooler in the shade. Uh, you also had the the warm air going to the very peak of the roof, and that that natural airflow essentially made it such that on the verandas you could always have one side of the house that was in shade, and you would get a nat- natural breeze and everything. It was also warmer in winter. You go to the center of the house, and it was warmer mm-hmm. in winter. And the Queenslander was sort of the iconic house that was built in Queensland. You know, again, oddly, you know, such an obvious name. But anyway, so what happened, though, is that that was designed for the hotter conditions that we get in Queensland, the more subtropical, tropical, Mm -hmm. uh, further out west you go, more desert-like conditions. It was designed for that. It was not designed to be built in New South Wales or Victoria where it gets colder. So, there was a transition and I know it happened gradually. I couldn't put my finger on when, but probably 50 years ago, maybe even you know, 40 years ago, where a lot of the designers would crank out the designs in Sydney or Melbourne for houses that were appropriate for that sort of environment. Mm-hmm. And they would go and sell these houses, uh, house designs in Queensland. And so, the Queenslander began to die. The problem with Queenslanders also is that because they're generally all made out of wood that there's a lot of painting and that can get quite expensive. So, people would start going towards brick houses and now the most common kind of house in Queensland, the new houses, is a slab on ground uh, with brick and a wooden frame, Mm -hmm. which is what I've got. They're cheaper and everything, but there is no natural airflow in them. They're They're built on the ground as opposed to above the ground and they are not eco-friendly in any way. And it's just a predominance where I guess back in, for whatever reason, it was just simpler and easier to keep copying designs from climates that weren't appropriate. And yeah, it was one of those things I, I came across when I was working with Energex, which is the uh, local electricity provider. And there was a new building, a new depot building being built out at Winton, which is you know, in the middle of nowhere, a long way from here. So, so I'm like, I don't know, 1,600 kilometers from here out west in the middle of, uh, you know, an arid region. 
And it was built to the same design as the a new one in rural Victoria. And the cars out there had no cover, no car shade, no shelter, no nothing. Mm-hmm. The car park was simply designed without any shelter. Worked fine when you're in Melbourne, but when you're out there and you park a car in the sun every single day, it destroys your car. Mm-hmm. And oh, yeah. it's like the design, the designers never stopped to think about it. All of the others that had been built in the last 30 or 40 years for, for Energex, they were done and they, they had the full shades and everything. So, when you pulled in, there's actually, uh, I mean, it's not much. It's a little carport, little car cover, right? No big deal. Right. But this new design had nothing of that. And it was because the design was carbon copied from something that was done for Victoria. So, I just it feels to me like there's this brute force approach. Uh, not brute force, like a one size fits all, I don't care about being eco-friendly approach. A wasteful approach, I guess, to to architecture with, with, with houses and it's frustrating. So, anyway, I've shared my frustration. Well, I, I think, you know, li- living in an older house and appreciating the the cleverness of the original design and, and honestly, the quality of the materials versus the stuff that gets slapped up in eight weeks now. Um, I mean, it's, it's noticeable. It's you, you can feel it. And yeah, I think it's I, I don't think there's any. The, the more, you know, the more I read about, quote unquote, eco friendly home design, the, the more I just feel like I'm reading a bunch of marketing spin. Um I don't know. I don't know if that's where you were you were getting at, but it's I, I don't I don't see it because I th- I think honestly I mean if you know it's one of those things that doing it right probably means you can't be very profitable. I think the problem is that people come to expect something that is cheap, and in so doing, they begin to ignore the long term cost. And this is the whole thing about putting like any kind of renewable energy. You put solar panels on your roof. It's going to cost you money. Mm-hmm. You know, you're going to have to buy the panels, put them up there, wire them up, and you're going to have to find that money somehow. Some some of these companies are giving loans to let people do that, and that's great. But when you're building a house, it's a different story. I mean, every every penny counts, right? And the more you borrow, the higher your interest rate, and the more it's going to sting. So, you know, the cost of housing going up all the time because labor costs are high and material costs are going up as well. You put that together, you're in a bad situation. You don't want to pay for what houses used to be worth to construct. So, yeah, you go for the cheaper option. And the cheaper option is, of course, cookie cutter and not very well, well, not from an eco point of view anyway, not well designed. So, anyway. All right, I think I've ranted enough about that. 